Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to worship you today. What a blessing to approach you through the blood of Christ. May we never take it for granted, something so precious. We're not entitled to your presence. Lord, we deserve your judgment. But it's by your mercy and grace that we can come to you. Lord, forgive us for our apathy and indifference. We ask that you would expose the idols that consume us. Give us eyes to see your glory, your beauty, your holiness. I pray that you might animate our minds and hearts by your Spirit and fill us with visions of your benevolence and faithfulness. Father, forgive us for attempting to appease you through our own efforts. Help us to recognize all we have to offer is our sin and rebellion. Convince us, convict us where our attitudes and violate your holiness. Confront us with truth. Change us by your power. Make us the church you want us to be in this particular time and at this particular place. Use us to advance your kingdom here and throughout this world. Father, I pray that each person here might know you intimately, that each person here might worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that each person here might make you known faithfully. Prepare our ears to hear you speak. Prepare our hearts to embrace your wisdom. Prepare our minds to think more purely. Prepare our hands and feet to serve more passionately. Prepare us to be living sacrifices, completely pleasing to you. All this we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many believe that David authored this particular psalm, and they, in like fashion, believe that it was designed to be a continuation of Psalm 70. You know, David is an interesting blend of good and evil. He did noble deeds, he had godly ambitions, he was passionate and genuine in worship. And yet his life is stained with some egregious sin. A man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us, yet guilty of heinous transgressions. You read Psalm 23 and Psalm 51 together, you see the boundaries, if you will, of this man and his struggles. It's been said that no Bible character more fully illustrates the moral range of human nature than does David. The language in this psalm indicates that he is getting on in life. He is becoming old, older. He's starting to replay some of the things in his life, and maybe he's dealing with some guilt 
Clearly, verse 9 says, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. He also refers to youth, his youth, as being something in the past, something that's no longer present. You know, life is made up of stages, of seasons. The preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that, that there's a time and a season for everything. Childhood, there's youth, there's young adulthood, there's maturing and family time. Then there comes the empty nesting and soon the final chapters as we look toward those latter years. David's concerned about several things. He has some issues in his heart and in his mind that he is struggling with. We can certainly learn something from it. I would submit to you this morning that it is all very relevant because we have the same issues in our own hearts and minds. This psalm is a prayer, and it centers around three movements. And so we want to unpack those together this morning. He begins the psalm by pleading for the Lord's help. Pleading for help. It, it comes across with an air of desperation. He's in a hard place. He's in a dark place in his life. Verses 1 through 4, he pleads with the Lord to not let him experience shame or exposure or bondage. In verses 9 through 13, he pleads that he might not experience rejection, abandonment, loneliness, or suffering. In verse 18, he pleads that his life might not be useless, that he continue to have value. This aging king has many fears that are besetting his mind. You know, he got a lot right in his life. He's held up as a testimony of all the ways that we should Follow after the Lord, he's called a man after God's own heart. And yet, David had these incredible failures. The sin with Bathsheba, exposing Uriah to certain death by having him stationed at the front line. It had a major impact upon his family. The child that was conceived with Bathsheba died as an infant. And his other children were a heartache. They brought a lot of heartburn to David's life through the years. You think about Ammon, Amnon, who lusted after his sister Tamar. He tried to seduce her. She rebuffed him, so he raped her. Absalom, another of David's sons, found out about this. And it so angered him that he plotted for two years. He looked for his opportunity to bring about vengeance. And he had a gathering of all the brothers, the family together. And then he ordered, after Amnon had, the Scripture says, had his heart made merry, not aware of what was going on, Amnon then or Absalom then instructed his servants to kill him in cold blood there in front of all the brothers. Absalom himself led a rebellion 
to take the throne away from David, make himself king. There was a Adonijah who was handsome, boastful, and yet badly behaved. 1 Kings 1.6 tells us that David neglected disciplining him, which led to his problems and issues. He also led a revolt seeking to make himself king. This is David's life. We focus on the things. We focus on the slaying of Goliath. We focus on his childhood and the victories that he won. But as an adult, as king, in spite of all of his military success and his uh, exaltation as a king, David had a very restless life. He's concerned at this point with being captured. He fears the hand of the wicked, the grasp of the unjust, falling into the hands of cruel men. As a successful military leader, he'd made many enemies through the years. Now older, weaker, vulnerable, it appears that he's fearing payback, that they will be coming for him. You know, many temptations fade away as we age. The temptation toward sexual sin or toward the pride of life, worldly ambitions, those things may fade away as we age in this world. But other sins begin to crowd in. Other temptations come in. Those ideas of losing strength, of losing independence, of losing control. Wondering if there would be anyone there to help take care of us later in life. David is clearly concerned about family and about enemies. About being alone, about being weak, about being destitute, useless, shamed, fruitless. Finding yourself trapped in these dark passages of the mind can be quite traumatic. What fears are lurking in our minds and hearts? What fears are lurking in your mind, your heart? Is it the fear of cancer? Is it the fear of rejection? Is it the fear of loneliness, of failure, of dementia? Some things are worse than death, aren't they? Not having enough resources to care for yourself, not having anyone around who cares enough to help you. Imagine the people in, say, Afghanistan. Imagine being a sympathizer to the efforts for freedom and democracy that were underway there. And now, with all that's happening, there's no way that you can hide from the inevitable. Those enemies are coming for you, or being a Christ follower there. They know who you are, or will know soon enough, and they're coming for you. Imagine the fear and the trepidation that they're experiencing. Many people in our own nation, as we see the cultural revolution that is taking place in rapid form, many are struggling with that. They don't know what to expect tomorrow. Things that have been fairly consistent or steady it seems for generations have suddenly begun to experience upheaval, and it's creating a lot of fear and angst about what the future holds. David has deep and disturbing concerns. 
He's an aging king. He has many political enemies. He has murderous rivals in his own household. And his previous allies are positioning themselves for life after his death. Oh God, he says, be my refuge. Rescue me from my enemies. Help me with my thoughts and distresses. Light my way and deliver me from the darkness. It's a desperate plea. It's a desperate prayer. When's the last time you uttered one of those prayers to the Father? The second thing I want to show you this morning is he remembers and rehearses God's faithfulness. When in times of desperation, it's always good to go back and revisit those things that God has done for us and through us in the past. Not just our own lives, but in the lives of others. What kind of God is it that we say we follow and serve? Verse 5 is interesting. O Lord, for you, O Lord, are my hope. You are my hope. This word translated as hope means line or cord. It could be used as something to measure, like a measuring tape, a string that's used to measure distance. Or it could be used as a plumb line to make sure that something's in proper alignment. I think David has something else in mind here. My mind goes immediately to Joshua chapter 2. Remember the scene? Joshua and Israel are getting ready to come into the promised land. And the first first defense there of the people in Canaan was Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city. And they sent spies in. Two spies went in to Jericho. The king found out or was suspicious that they were there and began to turn over every stone looking for these spies from Israel. Everyone knew Israel was out there camped on the other side of the river. They knew what was coming. These two spies were being hunted. And there was a woman there in the city by the name of Rahab. She was a prostitute. She was an unsavory type. And she brought them in and she protected them. She hid them from the king, gave them refuge. And when it came time for them to make their exit, she asked them for mercy. She said, when you come to take the city, be merciful. Show merciful to me and all my family. You remember what they did? They told her, you've dropped a rope out of this window. She lived in the city wall on the outside part of the city. And she evidently let them down through the window by a rope, a cord. And they said, if you'll take this scarlet cord and you will let it hang out the window, when we come to take the city, you will be spared. And the scripture says that's exactly what she did. She took them at their word. She put her hope, her trust, her belief in that scarlet cord. It's not accidental that it was red like blood. That seems to be what David is saying here. Lord, you are my Savior. You are the one who gives me hope. The one in whom I trust. Who is the source of my faith. 
this hope is not based on Rahab's testimony alone. David has his own history with the Lord. Notice what he says. He says, From my youth upon you I have leaned. Into you I have leaned. Into you I have trusted. If you read the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, particularly verses 12 through about 54, you find out a lot about David and his background. David was the eighth. He was the last in Jesse's tribe. He was the youngest. You remember he was, his, he was relegated to tending sheep, watching the flocks, and carrying food back and forth to his brothers who were fighting the Philistines. In fact, his father called him up and said, I want you to go check on your brothers, take them, take them some of these supplies, and report back to me how they're doing. And remember when David showed up, this was, uh, this was in Goliath's heyday. Goliath was out there taunting the people of God. Saying, who, who wants to come out and fight me? I am the champion. Let's, let's make this winner take all. You know, you beat me, you can rule us. I beat you, I'll rule you. He was mocking God because the people were faithless. The soldiers were faithless. They were petrified. They were scared. You remember the story, right? David, he's a young boy. And he shows up and he is indignant. He's indignant because they're just letting this heathen, this pagan, malign God's name and reputation. He is robbing the glory from God. And no one is angered by that. They're all scared, too scared to care. David said, I'll fight him. <laughs> they laughed. Oh, boy. Your intentions are admirable, but you're just a small, scrawny boy. And yet he did. He persuaded them. And he, went. he went not in his own strength. He went not in the armor and strength that King Saul could provide, but he went in God's strength, in faith and trust in God. He was willing to go. And he had that attitude that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they went to the fiery furnace, remember? And the king was pretty much saying, look, you've still got a chance to bail out on this. You don't have to die for your God. And they said, look, our God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we'll still trust him. We'll still trust him. And that's what David did. And you know the story. The battle was won, not by David's hand, but by God's hand. He was devoted to God, and God delivered him. David says here, I have been a portent to many. That word portent is interesting, isn't it? It means a sign, a miracle, a wonder. After slaying Goliath, David, <laughs> he was a hero. Remember when he came back to the city and the people, the women were all swooning. They were chanting, oh, King Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Made Saul very angry and jealous. David says, I have been a portent to many. They look at me as impressive. 
but it's not me. He said, but Lord, it's you where my refuge lies. It's in you where I trust and I hope. God worked in David's life a testimony to his faithfulness. This same word is used in Exodus when Moses first went to Pharaoh. And remember, they had a little bit of back and forth and Moses put his staff down and it turned into a serpent there. Same words used. A sign, a wonder. God was sending a message to Pharaoh said, you got more than Moses to contend with here. You'll be contending with me. David understood that. His God was powerful and supernatural. So he saw his own miraculous life in the same context. God is mighty and majestic and greater than all the challenges. Even when David sinned, even when he committed this egregious sin, God proved to be faithful in his life and bring about repentance and restoration. He didn't deliver him from all the consequences, but he continued to use David. He's feeling desperate. He pleads with an earnest passion for God to intervene. And then he remembers and he rehearses the greatness and the faithfulness, the awesomeness of God. And then he says, My mouth is filled with God's praise. My mouth is filled with your praise. You can't, you can't go back and reflect and remember God's deeds, God's faithfulness in our lives our lives and all others, all His other people. And not be moved to celebrate and honor that. To lift up the voice in praise and honor to Him. David says, my mouth is filled with your praise. He went from being desperate and in a very dark place to being on the mountaintop in this prayer with the Lord. Ever buy something and feel like you got cheated? Every time I buy a bag of potato chips, I feel that way. Right? You open them up and you go, where are the chips? It's a big old bag and the chips are down in the bottom, right? I need longer arms to reach the chips. Or cereal, my favorite. Big old box. It's pretty. It's attractive. It looks delicious. And you open it up and you say, Are there any, is there anything in here? Where's all the fruit? I was reading this week about people going to a concert here in Atlanta recently and they were upset because it didn't deliver on its promise. They wanted their money back. It didn't come through with everything it told us it was going to be. It's a big letdown. How often do we profess or project big praise, big worship? We talk, give lip service to the fact that we love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and that we exalt Him with all that we are. If truth behold, our hearts are filled with less than we advertise. God sees through our big praise boxes. 
My youngest grandson's going through a phase right now, some of you parents have been there, where he doesn't really care about eating dinner. It's his least favorite meal. It's a grind every night. It's laborious every night, cajoling, coaxing, everything that can be imagined, trying to get him to eat his food. And he'll get motivated every once in a while. Mom and dad will think they've got the key and they will motivate him and he'll get fired up and energetic and he'll open his mouth wide. But when he actually bites down, he takes just a very little bit. And then I look across the table at the other two and whatever they've been promised, the pendulum swings the other way and they're over there shoving everything in their mouth at the same time because they want to get to whatever's coming next. I looked at my granddaughter the other night and she couldn't put her lips together. She had so much food crammed into her mouth. Her cheeks, it was like an overinflated balloon ready to pop. Her mouth was full and there was no room for anything else. She couldn't even chew or swallow. It was a stalemate. The dinner ritual is funny and frustrating in most homes, I guess. When your mouth is full of something, there's no room for anything else. Our mouths are typically filled with lots of things, aren't they? I was watching one of those ball games yesterday, last night sometime, and you know, people are yelling and screaming. They're filled with mouths are filled with lots of things, and the ones that are not yelling and screaming are stuffing food in there. Oh, what a great place to be, right? A lot of the things that fill our mouths are unhealthy. Maybe we fill them with complaints or boasts or platitudes or gossip or constructive criticism. Self-pity, slander, the list goes on and on. When our mouths are filled with these things, there's no room for praise directed toward God. Even if there is a little room left, the aftertaste taints our praise. David says the temptation here was that others were making too much of him. Great champion, military strategist, a warrior, a king. But you, O oh God, are my refuge. David knows he's nothing apart from God. Goliath had that part right. David was just a scrawny little boy with nothing to offer. But Yahweh is the all-powerful and unstoppable God. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. And the rest of this psalm, he's espousing God's greatness and glory. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory the all day long. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. Their number is beyond my knowledge. I can't count them, he says. I will remind them of your righteousness and yours alone. David, you remember last week we were talking about that song stuck in your head? David has a song stuck in his head. God is great. God is glorious. God is righteous. He and He alone is worthy of praise and honor. No matter how weak 
I become. No matter how many enemies are before me or behind me. No matter what they say about me. My mouth will be filled with your praise, O Lord. Oh, to have mouths filled with God's praise. To daily sing with Charles Wesley, who wrote, My heart is full of Christ and longs its glorious matter to declare. Of Him I make my loftier songs. I cannot His praise forbear. My ready tongue makes haste to sing the glories of my heavenly King. Father, give us hearts quickened by Your Spirit, minds that are consumed with Your greatness, and mouths that are filled with Your praise. Lord, do it for Your honor, for Your glory. Do it that we might be pleasing and honoring to You. Indeed, Lord, fill our mouths with that which exalts You before this world. What a great God You are. Ever before us, Lord, are the examples, the testimonies, the witnesses. Your Word commends them to us. Lord, history reminds us of them. Our own lives demonstrate them. Even now, Lord, we pray that You be honored and glory. And that we leave this place today, we'll go forth with that song stuck in our head that David has so aptly written for us here today. Our mouths be full of Your praise and Your glory. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.